Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this segment of The Drop at Digital Film Tree with Severance. Today, we are also joined by Jessica Gagne, who was the cinematographer for all nine episodes on Severance, and I am so excited to dig in with you. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. It's my pleasure. So kind of first things first, can I ask how many cameras you used on, on this show? Uh, so many. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely um, the show that I saw with the most cameras on it. Um, usually we were a two camera crew, but there were so many days that we were three. Um, and then there's some days we were also four. I don't think we really went up to the five mark, but you know, it wasn't rare for us to be three cameras. Which kinds of cameras? Mostly because you had an elevator space and a closet space and then giant hallways and practical sets. And I, I mean, just please humor me and walk me through that. Um, well, we shot with the Sony Venice, not necessarily because it has that amazing Rialto function, um, which... I love and allows you to do so many fun things and allowed us to do a lot of specific shots in severance, um, especially shots that were more subjective or really close to things or tied on to people or, you know, with the body cam. Um, but yeah, we use the Sony Venice and I'd been using that camera for years now. So I really, I really enjoy using it. Was that even for some of those tighter spaces? Did you get in there and the elevator, we had three different sets for it. So, you know, depending on what we were doing, because there was a really specific uh, shot design type space, we would use different variations of the camera. But we, we'd often like pull a wall if we needed to. Personally, I don't like pulling walls and, and working outside the real space. But um, in the underground world, I'm going to maybe like push a little bit forward on that topic. Um, like to a bigger picture idea, the inside world, we were open to shooting the camera outside the walls, but the outside world, we always wanted to keep it like a realistic camera position that wouldn't require removing a wall. We almost wanted it to feel always strange and weird in the uh, inside underground world. So that allowed us to do that, you know, cause it would be something that usually I wouldn't really be into. Um, so the Venice was a great tool because it just could do anything you wanted it. But if it didn't need to be in Rialto, we would take it out of Rialto. So for the underground, I always got that surveillance sense. So whether they were walking the halls or even in the wellness sessions where it was meant to be like a safe space-ish for them, it was still that feeling of being monitored. But can you tell me about the break room and how you guys set that up? Because you have the light projecting onto her face and you know, if she's really against the glass and that was so close up, how did you guys plan for that? The break room was a very interesting space to shoot in. It was very small. Um, it was designed with angular walls because it's so dark in there. You might not notice that, but um, it just made it difficult, especially with COVID to shoot in there. So we would often pull a wall out to be able to kind of have, you know, space to breathe, space to work. Cause it was a huge, it was just a challenge to be there. Um, and the other interesting part about it is that table, so the table that was made for um, for the scene was like an, one of those old school, you know, in school we had those projectors with the 
in French we say acetate, but I'm forgetting the word in English, but it's like a piece of plastic, like um not oh, plastic, but the, I know what you're talking about where it's plastic I, and the light shines on it and it's projected. It's um, yeah, projected and goes through um this prism thing anyway. So we had one of those and that's actually what would light heli. Um, it was a bit harder when we did the reverse. So like these two things we're, we're filming through the glass, one's on milkshake, right. And one's on heli. We obviously shot them separately because they had to be lit very differently. The direction that was on heli was actually the light of the machine that was lighting her. It was so beautiful to see like the, the letters on the face and on the wall and on the glass that I didn't want to add any extra light to that. Um, and no, so then in post, we actually had to go in and like enhance her eyes a little bit just because I couldn't really, if I started lighting with something else, it was going to mess up the beautiful natural thing that was occurring with the device. And then on Milchik's side, something really amazing happened when we were shooting that. Um, we were shooting with this old Pana zoom lens from Panavision and it was we were pointing right at the light source, right? So we did have to light him because or else we wouldn't see him at all because there was no light projected towards him. But there was this flare happening um, that created kind of like this like red dot on him and he kind of looked like an Indian God or like some kind of uh, spiritual being, which was really kind of amazing. And we had no idea that was gonna happen. Um, so we just kind of embraced it. And when we would zoom in, the flare would change and had a really, magical feeling to it there are a, there's a wonderful palette of skin tones on the show but then you also have lighting concepts it, it's a huge difference between where the four of them are sitting on the open fluorescent lights and then again back to that closet where it's dark it's confined and then all the way through even to the end at the party with the book reading there are so many skin tones and lighting scapes really for kind of the psychological journey that you're taking us on. Did you start breaking down the script, thinking about that? Did you have cast ahead of time to start planning for? Talk me through that a little. Well, an interesting thing about like a set like Severance or just the setup of Severance, uh, you have like these four main characters, right? And they're all on the same front. They're all in the same shots. They're all you know, we're, we're usually filming them together um, and we're doing a lot of multi-camera work to be able to kind of get through our days. You know, we had a really busy schedule. We had a lot of material. We had a lot of shots. Like if you watch Severance, you can tell there's a lot of shots. Um, and there wasn't necessarily, there wasn't necessarily tons of time to really go in there and like light every single person specifically. And if we started doing that, then we would have half the shots that we had and then it would not be the same show. So it was very interesting to see how every skin tone was different because they really were, those four characters were sitting at those desks would have been lit completely differently usually. But because we didn't do that that much, it kind of like brings them out, you know, their natural skin tone and natural character out. And it's pretty interesting. They really have like an individual texture to each one of them. I think I actually really like that. Um, and then there's the idea of different color spaces depending on where you are in the show you know yes the underground world is really homogenous but on the outside every single space that belongs to a character has its own identity and it's really driven from each character like for example um, mark's house is very dark inside and it's very contrasty and and it's all about him using lighting for practical purposes so he's not gonna turn on every single light in his house and like air within the space. You know, he is watching TV. So he might have one lamp 
lamp on next to him at the television or he goes to the kitchen he has just the kitchen light on you know and everything else just kind of like falls out Cobell on the other hand she's spying on him you know so she's not turning on lights inside of her place she's just like the light is finding her from the outside from within and these are like concepts that for me were really clear from the beginning and even before we started doing tests and figuring stuff out like I personally knew that that's how we were going to like light those spaces and then um something that came from Ben directly was that uh, Devin and Rickens be tungsten. So having worked with Ben a lot before, I know he doesn't like tungsten a lot. He doesn't like things that go to like the yellower tones. He doesn't like warm tones or or sodium for that matter. Um, So when Ben decided to give me permission basically to shoot tungsten, I was happy because I felt like Devin and Rickon really was an opportunity to create like a warm, inviting kind of environment, you know, and that comes from a little bit of Rickon's character that, you know, plays more about the appearance and about uh, how insecure he actually really is, I would think. But yeah, you know, the, the wanting to like have a mood in the house that was very Devin. Well, even the cover of his book, it's like he's yellow behind him and then it goes into the red. And so, yeah, it's about the warmth, you know, he wants to be... He's trying to be inviting. Yeah. So, well, the birthing center, though, because obviously they chose that and you're trying to juxtapose it with another character that we see with all of their wealth and the reason severance might be used there. And so the dichotomy between those two birthing cabins and how you shot in there, because that at least, even though that's the Audi world, didn't feel like walls removed. It felt very them with Mark's kind of situation coming right from the underground, going straight out to there through the snow. Like to me, at least that was a really interesting sequence to watch because you're coming from the bright, harsh lights right into his reality as an Audi and going into this kind of warm comfort, let's hang kelp situation. But right next door is still his own reality and watching the back and forth, the, the cuts in that, I just was watching every little detail that was coming out about where, as a viewer, I should be kind of thinking in these ways, not just because of the, the performances, of course, but the color palettes actually really struck me that like, I feel this way, watching them go from this environment to the next it's a continuation of Devin and Rickon's world. And then it's also the meeting of like the more expensive world, like, you know, like what you're kind of like figuring out. I think it's that intersection, you know, and Devin and Rickon where they are in their world, they're kind of like, you know, just on the edge of like being wealthier. Like they, I mean, they obviously are wealthier, but they're kind of not in the world of the elite either. So that place kind of put them, put them there for, uh, Adam Scott's character and uh, Cobell living next door. That's like a real row of houses. Like they're really blue. They're really differently designed, but all kind of matchy matchy. Those exteriors blew me away. How did you plan for that? So far as like Cobell coming out to always be intrusive or just watching him have moments going in by himself. Well, they always knew that they needed like houses next to each other. Um, the fact that we found, well, that locations found that specific neighborhood is amazing. Uh, it didn't take many neighborhoods before uh, they found it. And then once we were there, I was actually, 
on vacation the moment they found it. And I remember getting a text from Ben or some, like he was sending me like frames from Artemis. And I was just, I'm like, it's perfect. It's perfect. I'm not there. And I know it's perfect. Um, it was a really weirdly cinematic little neighborhood um, and they were amazing. They were so nice. So it drove a lot of the aesthetic as well. And Ben's favorite color is blue. So that was just like great for him. <laughs> um, yeah, it made the storytelling easier. The hardest thing was probably the garbage because the garbage thing, which is a huge plot point, like it didn't make sense with the with the landscape. So they had to like build that into it. Um, but yeah, it was a just a cinematic place. And I think that with Severance, we tried really hard to be sensitive to that, you know, not settling on locations that weren't cinematic and didn't give us like excitement. You know, if we weren't excited about shooting somewhere, we would just push back. It had to be like, oh, I see so many things, you know, and I personally react like that when a location um triggers me in a good way. I get really, really excited. And I start taking pictures. If I'm not taking pictures or if I'm not excited, it's probably not a good sign. Well, so when you say Ben, you're talking about Ben Stiller, who directed and served as uh, one of the creators bringing this to life. Can you tell me about kind of your collaboration with him? Because everyone we've talked about is, has really talked about his work ethic and how every detail he is very in tuned with. And so for you guys, was it, tell me about the conversations per character or per the locations and just kind of the choices that really came forward in those conversations. I think, you know, we kind of originally set a language, a general language, it started off with talking about how the interior and the exteriors would be shot, you know, well, I would say any versus Audi worlds, how those two would feel a little bit different, but, you know, still needed to be part of the same show. Um, and the process evolves, like we, we also break the rules, you know, we'll set rules, but we don't necessarily commit to them. You know, at first we were like, okay, we're not going to do handheld in any world. Um, we're not going to do steady cam. And then all these things, like as the show goes on and this is television. So you're having to kind of like create as the show goes on. Um, you don't always have the chance to prep everything before you go. You kind of have to really know the language and be able to adjust. So we'd constantly be asking each other questions and checking in with these bigger ideas that we had formulated at the beginning, you know, like the conversations um, about lighting for the characters and all that. These are things we had shared together and we had, you know, looked at references and, and kind of identified like, okay, like this is the direction. I often propose or show him a lot of different visuals and I see what connects with him and what doesn't. So I can refine, refine it. And then, then we'll do tests. And, and it's kind of like a, it's kind of a space where everyone can be like, oh, this is going too much in this way or that way. Do we want to pull it back? And then he really helps communicate. He really communicates well to me during those tests, during that test process, I can see if I'm going in the right direction or not, you know, um, but there's a lot of space to create and that's really great. And then it gets more and more and more refined. And that's where like his detail aspect will come in, you know? Um, so he'll tend to leave space until the end. It just gets clearer and clearer up until the edit and then the color grade. Um, but yeah, we do break those rules as well. Uh, coming back to that, like in episode nine and eight, you know, we really started breaking the rules. Um, and seven as well for like the MDE, the music dance experience, we did Steadicam, uh, which was very unnatural for the show, but 
to me, I wanted it to be like a music video personally. So I was like, wait, let's shoot it like a music video. <laughs> I, I mean this sincerely as a compliment, but it was psychological torture, like the lighting and the music and the bite. And just, it was so tell me everything walking into that, because that at least from a, uh, uh framing and shooting it and the lighting design seemed like that had to put you through the ringer <laughs> tell me tell me did well, you even have a say in kind of like the colors that were going to come out of the ceiling yeah yeah no the shooting of it was simple uh the planning of it was harder um cuz first first of all you know when we knew we had to design we had to design quite a few lighting setups for the show in general and when we got to MDE, uh, the gaffer and I were like, we need the music. Like, Ben, we need the music. What's the music? And, <laughs> and, then, I'm, and then I had to be like, okay, how many parts do you want to this? And we determined that he would want four steps so that it would change. Because to me, it was important that it wasn't like one lighting look. There needed to be like a crescendo because there's like a crescendo in the scene. Um, so from that, he gave us the music. And then Kurt and I just started designing it. We just started trying things out. So I gave him a couple colors for the first one. So it would just be like pops of colors here and there. And so it's like with like orange, yellow and pink. And then um, the more the song progressed, we added colors and we added saturation. So we were taking away white. And then at the end, you know, it's, it's a little cliche, but we ended up in red and orange just because it was the, the anger of Zach, right. That like bubbles up to the surface. So yeah, it was just an evolution of things, but it took, a lot of time to dial it in like it was maybe four weeks of revisiting going to see it so we would and also the dim so the dimmer board op had to program every single light it wasn't like a plug and play thing like he really had to program this entire thing so at first it was it was rough like it took a while before we got to something that made any sense um because he's plugging in the rhythm he's plugging in the speed and then we have to yeah is it going to pick up saturated enough or not so so Kurt and I would go to MDR when we'd be shooting on other stages, you know, we'd be like, Oh, Jeff, five minutes. He'd be like, Jeff, five minutes. I have something ready to like go and look at. So we'd go to MDR, he'd, you know, turn on the looks we'd laugh. Cause it was always weird. Um, and then we'd be like, okay, well, you need to tweak that. You need to tweak that. You need to tweak that. And then at one point when I felt it was good enough, then we brought Ben in. Um, and then he gave us some notes and we tweaked it again. And then at, at that point we were like, a couple of days away from shooting, but we needed all the prep we could on that sequence. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And then we got to shooting it and there's four, there was lighting cues that we would, you know, that we set with Ben as to when, when it would switch from one to another. And the, the whole camera work of it and all that was quite simple. It was just music video style, 24 mil, you know, a lens that we really didn't um, use that much close to characters, but to me, it needed to be like a music video. So <laughs> I mean, it's ND, it's a music dance experience. So it was, you know, free flowing and finding it with Milchik and, and he was such an amazing dancer that it all kind of happened really well. And then Ben knew the, the story points that he needed to get, you know, and he would go back in and get like specific things that he knew he needed. Um, and yeah, like up until the whole bite thing, then we transitioned into handheld and, it just kind of naturally happened. Um, but then there's like decisions for the handheld, you know, he was wondering, oh, well, I feel like there's scenes, you know, in eight that should be handheld. That scared scared me a little bit because it was like going away from what we had said we would do. 
But, you know, we follow that intuition of his and it's like really interesting what happens is that as the characters start like unhinging and as things really start unhinging in, in the Lumen world, that handheld creeps in, you know, so there's like a little bit of humanity that's creeping in a little bit of uh, unstableness. And then the last episode, he decided to go steady cam, which is interesting because he doesn't like steady cam. But it was just about making it the most subjective experience. And that was the tool that would allow us to follow the actor, you know, closely and intimately and be reactive with the performance of the actor, you know, without having to like, without, without having anything like coming in between the actor and the camera, like Steadicam really is an amazing tool for that without it being handheld, because it would have just felt maybe too unnerving, you know. It did feel like the closer we got to the end of the season, the closer we got to each character physically. I mean, Heliar, we had so, so many shots from like, <clears throat> literally we meet her from above with her face down on the table. But by the end there, she's in the outside world as her innie and the camera is right in her face the same way that Cobell is right in her face. And I just thought that was just such a striking contrast from where we had started um, did you guys ever do any kind of previs or anything? Were you building those worlds in the game engine at all? I mean, obviously the Stanley parable, there's some, some roots in a game. Um, so just kind of thought through that with so many different labyrinths of that environment. I mean, there was previs for some of the transition sequences, like when they're going from Innie to Audi, when, well, especially Heli going Innie to Audi in episodes one and two in that staircase white hallway sequence. A lot of that had to be previs just because we needed to, it's such a confusing sequence. It's confusing for the audience, but that means it was confusing for us to shoot it as well. Um, and to define what that was, we needed to really break it down from storyboard to previs to like mapping out exact plans. Cause just basic things like, oh, we're going to, you know, invert the door and she's going to actually come back through the staircase into the hallway when she's just coming out of the hallway. And these shots are like stitched together or wiped together or whatever. There's different techniques that we use. They all tended to be pretty simple. And we wanted to use as little amount of VFX as possible. But VFX was key to tie these things in. So, you know, we did have some storyboards and, and, and previs, not a lot when you think about like the whole thing, you know, like MDR scenes were never boarded, uh, except if it was like a special effects, like the goo coming down, you know, that was more to have everyone understand the scope of the visual effect. It wasn't a show that relied heavily on previs, but it is a show that has a lot of visual effects. They're just very seamless and subtle. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that because so much of what Jeremy shared was about how much was practical but then even you mentioned the goo and I honestly cannot get over Kier's house <laughs> in the underground and just thinking about, you know, how much of that was practical versus aesthetic extension. And then any of, uh, he actually, he shared that the, the elevator scene when they are transitioning, that's an in-camera effect. Yeah. That's a Zolly. It's just a straight up like Hitchcock Zolly. Um, it's kind of a clean I think where people might not recognize it right away that it's a Zolly is because usually when that tool is used it's made to kind of contrast with the background 
So it's, it's to kind of like see the perspective of the character who's in foreground and the background kind of shift, you know, and, and, and feel like they're getting further or closer away to the background. We really weren't interested in that, which is why, well, one, you know, the elevator is very minimal. And that's one of the reasons why it's minimal is to not call too much attention to it. It's more about the actor's face changing because the outside world is shot with longer lens and the inside world is shot a lot wider, closer, which is why in episode nine, we're that close because we're in their any state. So when we're in the any state, we tend to be more wide angle and like very like weird, <laughs> close kind of proximity to these actors, um, which kind of enhances that sort of surveillance feeling still. Um, but yeah, the Zolly was used for that. And we really had to kind of like focus on keeping the top space and the bottom space under below the, the face um, equal so that the only thing you would really pay attention to in the shot is the actor's face changing. So they're transitioning from that aesthetic to the interior aesthetic. Going into VFX then, can you tell me how much you had to work around or set up or plan for in something like you know, the Kier's house or uh, especially the goo. And then also, you know, all set extensions when it came to like the hallways that just went on and on. And can you tell me, were those goats real? Oh yeah, they're real. They're real. That was like the best day on the, of the entire shoot was baby goat day. I think everyone was happy. It's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, baby goats are amazing. They're also like jumping on the dollies. They were like eating the camera cords. It was amazing. They were just, like you would see them and you would just melt. Like everyone was running to the monitors. Um, but in terms of planning for VFX, there were the more obvious sequences. And, you know, it is a show. It was a big show and it was there was a lot of stuff to prep. We didn't end up prepping at all. Um, some of the stuff we knew that we would just rehearse with the actors, figure out once we saw the rehearsal. You know, we'd go in with an idea maybe or like Ben would have an idea for a shot or I'd have a specific idea for something else, whatever. But a lot of it was done, you know, with responding to what the actors were bringing to the table. You had like four amazing actors. I mean, well, there's more than four, there's a whole bunch of them, but like in the, the lead, if I'm talking about like the MDR core, you have these characters that are so different that, you know, it's hard for a director to probably contain them and like want to like come in with like everything like figured out and known. I think Ben's process really respects actors that he like wants to work with them and really wants to kind of figure out if what he's seeing works with them. And then we create space to be able to capture that. And it really makes something that's quite balanced and such a layered project. You need it. You need the perspective of these different humans who are embodying these characters. Well, different actors, not human. They are humans also. But with regards to like set extensions and, and things that are more um, visually driven about the world, uh, there were lots of conversations in prep, you know, as to what's the world, what is it, what's the map of Kier, you know, where where are things? Um, so we would, you know, constantly be asking these questions and some some things would take more time to figure out uh, depending on when we had locations. But as soon as we had a location for something, we would start asking those questions. And like the idea of the ha of Kier's house, I remember, I think that's Ben who wanted to, who thought of that. He was, we went to this museum where the interior had like a really cool light well feeling. For me, the light wells were really important. It was something I, I was really inspired by the Chichu Museum in Japan on this like art island called Naoshima. And I was like, ah, oh, it would be amazing if we had these big light wells to like light these 
museum spaces and, and it's like very concrete kind of style. Um, and there was this Hudson Museum, the Hudson River Museum. We went there and it was beautiful. We loved the, the, we loved the underground portion of it and how it had that vibe. But then we walked outside and there was like this house that's like a museum house that was part of the that was part of the museum. And then Ben just saw it and then just, there was there's weird concrete walls around it. He was like, wouldn't it be weird if like this was like Kier's house underground? And then we all really connected with that and ran with it. It was almost shut down at one point as an idea that because it, it got really tricky to do it. But then um no, we ended up doing it and it, it was half set. So like the walls are extended up. There's like a door that they brought in there but a big part of that is real that <laughs> I mean watching them walk into it and then when you go further even to the uh the waffle party you know and watching him sit there and then going into the dance sequence <laughs> that just <laughs> tell me okay I I'm almost afraid to ask about that dance sequence but like because it's it's you know you say Hitchcock with the with the Zuli, but then I was like this is so Kubrick slash Mr. Robot meets it's just straight up Severance like how did how did you guys plan for that one because it's so dark with choreography with costumes and the isolation of him sitting there. Well, a big part of it is costumes and props working together. Um, I mean, the weirdness comes from Dan. Like the writer has this amazing <laughs> mind. I don't know where he comes up with his ideas or how, but he's always surprising. Um, and then Ben really gets the tone of it. So like the two of them together kind of have, I think they're like a magical combination. Um, but yeah, people kind of had fun and just ran with it because it feels like a very campy sequence in the whole thing. You know, everything is like really aesthetic and on point. But then you get to this thing and you're like, what is this? You know, <laughs> but I kind of I kind of love in the end that it's so weird and it's just strange. We for me, it was simple. Uh, there wasn't anything that complicated about it. We tried to add in like a couple more textured abstract shots that we shot through reflections to some of the set dressing that was there that allow us to, allowed us to do that. But um, yeah. It felt time. very eyes wide shut meets the Met Gala. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, that the, in the uh, overtime contingency that, uh, lash out where he's not lash out, but where he's, you know, stretched across, that was a practical set that was built. It was built. Yes. And we did not find that. <laughs> <laughs> and the angles that you have. So there's a couple of things here that, that I'm trying to connect because I want to get to Heliar in the elevator and watching, um, uh, I always forget his name, the head of security, who comes running around the corner and it's almost as if he appears out of like a completely fl fluid hallway. You, I don't even necessarily see the corner. He's just emerged and then he's running towards the hallway and you see every angle of heli and just the very poignant on the nose piece of like, it's this freaking elevator that is killing me. And then same thing with this tight space and the opportunity to unlock themselves and same thing we're we're just catching him from every different angle while he's just holding one pose 
it feels so complicated or it, it looked so simple, but it feels like there were so many complicated setups to translate that. Am I overcomplicating it or were those really big setups? I don't think it's complicated. I think it was just the volume of shots was insane for that sequence. Uh, I remember writing out the shot list with Ben and just having a headache thinking about how many shots there were. Um, he, he wanted so many details uh, that it was like overwhelming, you know, because sometimes you, you're like, okay, we have like 30 setups. It'll take this much time. It's good. We got them. It was like 65 like shots. I don't know. It was just crazy. Like the names, the details, the, the turning, and then like the push in. And then on the other side, we're going to take the wall out. So yeah, it was a uh, pretty laborious, I would say. That's what was daunting about it. It was just like the volume of shots. But it was just he such was, a payoff. If I can, if I can thank you for that, such a payoff. First well, he was just thinking them. about all the back and forth and the timing and like having, you know, all the tools that he needed for the edit, you know. And then talk me through color. How long did you get per episode to, to work on color? I never calculated how long it took. Um, it's a process. We kind of just respect the process. Uh, so I worked with Tom Poole and Andrew Geary at Company Three. They're both amazing and had such a big, were such a big part of this show. The first three episodes, I think, are much longer to grade. Um, it's probably like. Did you drop three at first and then weekly? It was two, I think, and then weekly. Or was it two and two, two for sure at the beginning. Um, but the first three episodes were a lot longer because we were establishing the look and like what the show would look like. And then after that, I would like the colorist would work on it. Like we would do like a fast first pass and then I would step away, let them do the work and then come back, view it. And then we'd have Ben come in to approve it at the end. But the um, first three was like, I was there the whole time in the room working it out with them. Um, also, it's like the hardest color grading show ever it's an incredibly hard show to grade. I don't know if people realize, but like matching all of those white walls um, and dealing with vintage lenses and the skin tones. And I underexpose a lot because I look for like a specific texture and quality in the camera. So sometimes I cross the line and, and you can see it falls apart. And if you're shooting with like a longer lens that has less color separation, less, less sharpness, these things become harder and harder to define in the grade and to like target. So yeah, it was very hard and mind numbing, you know, cause you're, you start going crazy. Well, so by the time you get to episode five, the grim barbarity of optics and design, when you're literally coming into a different space, like they have different walls, but you're also looking at paintings and everything that's happening in that environment. How, how did you work through that in color? Like that was a tonal shift, at least for me, it felt like. Yeah, it's a more of a moody, a little bit more of a moody space, has a bit more density to it. I think that made it easier to grade because it wasn't as white. I think the white thing is really, really hard. And then also we were in HDR grading and grading the show in HDR was amazing. It, held, it holds up amazingly when you can actually watch it HDR. However, when you transfer that into regular HD, um, the highlights don't respond as well. And you know, never did I think that I would want everything in HDR, but like Severance, I only want to see it in HDR. It looks so much better. Honestly, 
Milchek and Heliar having these impeccably tailored, very like the pop of Heli's colors that are always coming in versus Milchek being very sterilized. And especially in this one where he's in the turtleneck and it's very white against the dance colors that are coming in. I mean, you can see the impeccable tailoring on a lot of these clothes. Like that's in bringing those bits forward that the HDR really, really mattered there. And it was just, you guys painted quite a lovely picture just with light. So bravo. Um, last question about the computers, because they are the old tube kind of situations. Were you actually shooting what was on screen or did that get comped in later? Uh, I mean, we usually were using what was on screen. There was like cleanup or details added um, or things changed if needed. But, you know, even like the, the like when she succeeds in the, the movie, the video comes on and it's like you're flying and all of that. That's all real. It was all made for that and delivered like the props team was amazing. And they had this guy called Martin. Um, I'm forgetting his last name, but he he did all the a lot of the graphics on that um and the keyboards worked like the you could actually select letters and bin them like you could you could sit and they were on i remember sitting myself there and binning you know oh my <laughs> when we were waiting sometimes um yeah it's important for ben to make it as real as possible for the actors so those types of details he really likes to get into it it excites him when, when that's possible and our prop department uh Kat Miller's apartment, she's amazing. She really pushed it to the next level. Like every single prop, every book, I was like, how the, did, like, did he write all these pages? And like, oh my gosh, he did. Like, that's also um, Dan, who was just writing, writing, writing all the time. And then Tansy, our graphics person, she would make those booklets for like the how to, um, how to Mac, be a macro data refiner and like you can see like the, yeah, yeah yeah no that stuff was wild the amount of work like it's crazy for you what was maybe you know the the shot the scene that you really loved from the show if that's even possible to pick out because so so much is just gorgeous one of my favorite scenes I don't know if I'm gonna choose the favorite scene, but there's one shot I really, really loved that I wished was used in full, but it wasn't. Um, the scene where Mark pulls up to the tree, um, where Gemma passed away, where she had her car crash. Um, there's like this one shot where it's super wide shot and you, the car was, we don't see this in the edit cause they didn't use it, but it's like the car drives up, goes around a corner and lights up the tree and stops and he comes out. Like they cut to it when he's out. I love that shot. Um, and that sequence was fun. Cause like we shot it using mostly car lights. And even there's this like one super, super long shot that Aoife and I did through, it was like a 400 mil shot or something through the forest. And we're following the car headlights across the water of the lake. Uh, that was great. I mean, those, the, those moments really excited me. I also really like how a lot of Mark's interior house came out when it was day scenes. I had tons of fun lighting those scenes. Yeah, the basement was wild. I almost felt like there was more light in the basement, which is obvious because then Petey is down there, but it's also what he's trying to hide and took everything of his wife out of the house and into the basement, etc. It just, 
the best word I can use for the show is intentional. You guys all really nailed so much of what I think was meant to come through. And it's a really wonderful experience. Thank you for, for sharing your time and unpacking your part of it with us. All right. I think that's all I have, Jessica. I mean, thank you for letting me talk your ear off for nearly an hour here. I really appreciate it. This was so much fun. Thank you. Good. My pleasure.